This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. As the New York Times was heading towards financial oblivion in 2015, there was only one thing that could save it. And a lot of the media, including the CNN network, the greatest friend and saviour to the media was a man, admittedly a larger-than-life man, known by the name of Donald Trump, who, thanks be to God, became the 45th President of the United States. Leaked tapes have revealed that the President of the CNN network encouraged Trump to run for President. CNN even offered him tips on how to win a CNN-sponsored debate to make sure that he had the best shot at becoming the president. And the worst thing that has happened to CNN since Trump announced he was running for president was Joe Biden becoming the new president after beating Trump in the November 2019 presidential race. Thanks to that stroke of bad luck, CNN has since lost nearly half of its primetime audience, Let me put that into context for you. On 4 November 2015, the day after Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in the presidential race, an average of 2.5 million primetime viewers tuned in to CNN. If Hillary Clinton had won the election, MSNBC, according to the head of NBC, would have taken at least a 30% hit to its revenue. So let's see how Trump accidentally saved the left-wing fake news media and how the corporate heads of the fake news media knew it and loved it. The journalists at the coalface of these news media outlets might have been fighting to genuinely bring Trump down, but the fake media bosses looked on Trump with love in their eyes. Right across the Western world, the fake media totally lost its mind over Donald Trump. From the time he won the election in November 2015, it did everything it could to bring him down, which it ultimately did, But Trump made the owners and the shareholders of the fake news media, and undoubtedly the very journalists whose every waking moment and dreams looked for any way that they could bring him down, a fortune. Batya Unger Sargon, in her book Bad News, said, Trump's antics in the 2015 campaign were catnip for a flailing media industry. Ratings and page views began to soar, and press gave Trump even more airtime and article inches, planting the seeds of his 2016 victory. The more outrageous he was, the more they covered him. 
giving him hours upon hours of attention worth its weight in gold. Estimates put the monetary value of the free press Trump got at around $2 billion, six times what any of his rivals in the Republican primary received. The media bosses were giving him attention because it was gold for their networks. CBS executive chairman Les Moons said that the Trump campaign may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. The president of CNN, a network that publicly led the charge of the left against Trump from the time he ran for president until he left office and then some, as I said at the beginning of the program, had been behind the scenes encouraging Trump to run for president. It had even offered him tips on how to win a CNN-sponsored debate among Republican candidates. Journalist Matt Taby wrote of the leaked tapes of CNN, What these recordings reveal is that CNN's cartoonish role as a determined and vituperative fake news media foil to Trump while perhaps real for some of the reporters and broadcasters involved, is at least to some degree kabuki theatre for executives. Even as president, Trump to network leaders is first and foremost a commodity, and an extraordinarily valuable one at that. These games of war between Trump and the fake media was good for both of them. If you think I'm kidding, look at this one example. On Thursday, 15 December 2016, Trump tweeted that Vanity Fair's circulation was way down, big trouble, dead. That same day after Trump's tweet, the circulation for Vanity Fair got the highest number of new subscriptions ever in a single day, and on top of that picked up 10,000 new followers on Twitter. For a journalist to get likes, retweets and page views like they had never had before, All they had to do was to post stories about hating Trump. I could bring a bit of poetry into your dull and boring lives and capture the feeling most journalists had for the Trump by paraphrasing the wonderful poem of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. I hate thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight. For the ends of being and ideal grace, I hate thee to the level of every day. Most quiet need, by sun and candlelight, I hate thee freely as men strive for right. I hate thee purely as they turn from praise. I hate thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I hate thee with a hate I seem to lose. So much for no hate speech from the loving left. Until Donald Trump, there had always been a professional separation in the media between the high and moral journalists who brought us the news without fear or favour and the grubby, money-hungry advertising people who would do or say anything for more money. But after the arrival of Trump as a candidate for the Republican Party and later as president, that divide evaporated into a puff of smoke. The left, that will tell you under your bored tears with their self-delusion, that they oppose all hate speech, couldn't give us enough hate speech about Trump, as the poem says. The head of the dignified, intellectually superior US National Public Radio, NPR, Dean Bacay, was interviewed by the New York Times. He compared the media attacking Trump in the most violent terms, to the significance of winning the civil rights movement's cause of the 50s and 60s. Going way over the top, he said that it would be cowardly not to use the most extreme terms to talk about Trump. 
Baquet, in a more reflective moment, admitted that this was a ridiculous and hysterical thing to say. But that was the tone of the fake media's attack on Trump. And they all seem to behave as if what Baquet said as being a commandment from God himself to attack Trump going to the utmost extreme. It was the New York Times which was hoping to bounce back from the very edge of the cliff staring down at oblivion in its digital born-again form that really latched on to this justified hatred of Donald Trump and made the biggest killing from it. On 7 August 2016, Jim Ruttenberg, a journalist for the New York Times, wrote a story entitled, Trump is testing the norms of objectivity in journalism, and argued for the media to abandon telling the truth about Trump, a call which was heeded by much of the media around the world. Jim Ruttenberg argued, Because Trump is a demagogue playing to the nation's worst racist and nationalistic tendencies, it is time to throw out the textbook American journalism has been using for the better part of the past century. This was radical stuff. In 1896, when Adolf Ox took over the New York Times, he promised for his paper that it will be my earnest aim that the New York Times give the news, all the news, in concise and attractive form, in language that is parliamentary in good society, to give the news impartially, without fear or favour, regardless of party, sect or interests involved, to make the consideration of all questions of public importance, and to that end to invite intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. Well, those words just didn't apply anymore. A more appropriate quote for where journalism in the era of Trump went was provided courtesy of an American major during the Vietnam War, quoted after the destruction of the Vietnamese village of Ben Tre. It became necessary to destroy the village in order to save it. Even before Jim Ruttenberg's battle cry to journalists of August 2016, Adolf Ock's ideals were out of the window, and the principle started by that major during the Vietnam War replaced them. In order to save democracy from Trump, it was necessary to destroy it, to trash it. We're still living with the consequences of much of the media abandoning the Ox goal today, because so far the old standards haven't come back for a lot of our media, and it's looking like that won't happen for a long time, assuming it ever happens. Why was it that the journalist took on Trump with such almighty wrath? It was no longer God's truth that was marching on, but theirs. I'll answer what their problem was now. Once upon a time, journalists were ordinary people like you and me. They lived in ordinary houses in ordinary suburbs. There were little guys like you and me. They fought for the little guy against the rich and powerful. But then, like I told you in an earlier program, they started getting college degrees from the fancy high-end universities in America like Harvard, Yale, Stanton. And they started getting paid big bucks. Partly this was because the number of people employed by the papers was cut because of the digital revolution. Some journalists even became megastars in their own right. So by the time America went to the polls and voted in the 2015 elections to decide whether Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump would be the next president, there was obviously no contest. The opinion polls told you the same story. Hillary was going to win, and by a landslide, Hillary had even booked the venue 
the very expensive venue for the very exclusive victory party where she was going to celebrate in New York her electoral win. All the invitations had been sent out. And then when the results quickly came in showing that Trump had won the election, the reaction was, what just happened? Many of the big journalists who were telling America that this presidential race, well, it wasn't even really a race, were neighbours of Hillary or living in some other similar area on the west coast in California. All these people thought the same way about the same things. Hillary was a shoo-in until something went horribly wrong. If you can remember those days, certain people were hysterical, in shock that Donald Trump had won. How was that even possible? Hillary's party was cancelled, and Hillary was like a stunned mullet. Then, what was taken to be the answer for why Trump won seemed to have been exposed in a story published in BuzzFeed on 16 November 2016. The late famous Jewish psychiatrist Dr. Abraham Tversky had nailed it when he said that human beings need four things. Air, food, drink, and someone to blame. The blame game is as old as man and woman for that matter, although man has been around for a bit longer. In the Garden of Eden, Eve was tempted by the serpent, Satan, to eat the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge. After she'd had a bite, maybe she ate the whole apple, she gave the apple that Satan had told her to eat to her partner, Adam, to try. He did. Later, God turned up and found them out. Dr. Tversky's summation of what humans needed happened. Adam said it was Eve's fault. Eve said it was the serpent's fault. And the serpent had no one else to blame, showing that the buck stops at the person at the lowest level with no one behind them to blame. The BuzzFeed blame game story was written by Craig Silverman. It was headed, This analysis shows how viral fake election news stories outperformed real news on Facebook. The top 20 performing false election stories, Silverman revealed, generated 8,711,000 shares, reactions and comments in Facebook. Compared to that, the top 20 best performing election news stories on the New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, NBC News and other mainstream media only generated 7,367,000 shares, reactions and comments. All but three of the fake stories were either pro-Trump or anti-Hillary. The other three were anti-Trump. One of the standout stories that Silverman identified was that Hillary Clinton had sold weapons to ISIS. The other said that the Pope endorsed Trump for president. This fake news had to be the reason why the unbeatable Hillary was well, beaten. But there was one important thing that this story didn't do. It didn't show that these fake stories changed anyone's mind on voting. Those stories appeared on dodgy sites that weren't ones where Americans typically went for their news. What the BuzzFeed story didn't say was that the reason why so many Americans voted for Trump was because the average American loves and is proud of his country, believes in God and the truth of the Bible, believes in family and the traditional values that go with that. All of those were the kind of things that Trump was saying. He also said a lot of other things that got some people upset. But his hard message was centre views and values and not left-wing values. Hillary was saying about those people that they were deplorables. I'm no expert on politics, but saying what you really think about the average American, while admirably truthful, just wasn't going to get you their vote. And perhaps the sting in the tail of this BuzzFeed story, which suggested that the fake news stories didn't have the impact on the election that they were praying and hoping it had, 
was the last paragraph of his article, which said, It's important to note that Facebook engagement does not necessarily translate into traffic. This analysis was focused on how the best performing fake news about the election compared with real news from major outlets on Facebook. It's entirely possible and likely that the mainstream sites received more traffic to their top performing Facebook content than the fake news sites did. As the Facebook spokesman noted, large news sites overall see more engagement on Facebook than fake news sites. How did the media respond? After the 2019 elections that saw Joe Biden elected as president, the Democrats, who had spent the last four years denying that Trump had won the election, he hadn't stolen it with help from the Russians, now announced that the rules had changed. It was no longer acceptable to be an election denier, like they had been for four years of the Trump term. The voters who had backed Trump in their voting had to accept, now without question, the results of the Democratic election. Mind you, there were a lot of questions. It seems like every day there are a lot more that emerge, like the material being exposed from Twitter now by Elon Musk. But as I've said already, during those years of the Trump presidency, the media had adopted wholeheartedly a new doctrine which was discussed by author Matt Taby in his book Hate, Inc. Why Today's Media Makes Us Despise One Another. He said this, For years, every pundit and democratic poll in Washington hyped every new Russian headline, like the Watergate break-in, and yet the only thing they managed to uncover with Trump was him paying off a porn star. Taby kept a list of what he called Russia-Trump bombshells that the media hyped until they had to discard each one of them because, as always happened, it became clear that they were just bullshit. Taby called those stories this generation's weapon of mass destruction, alluding to the fantastical weapons of mass destruction stories that were promoted by the Bush administration and the British Prime Minister Tony Blair before the Americans and their allies invaded Iraq. Like those stories, the stories of Russian collusion with Trump were all investigated until they had to be abandoned because they simply weren't true. Even Four Corners, story of the century, was just wrong. Taby said of this anti-Trump vendetta of the media about the man who had won the 2015 election that he wasn't supposed to win over the Russia stories, it's led to most journalists accepting a radical change in mission. We've become sides choosers, obliterating the concept of the press as an independent institution whose primary role is sorting fact from fiction. In my next program, I'm going to look at the life of its own that this new media mission developed and where it's taking us, which is somewhere we don't really want to go because it's still happening. Truth-telling to them is just a useful bit of propaganda, one of their standard stock phrases that they say without knowing what they mean. Thanks for listening into this program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. And Paul, don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Northern Hope Anglican Church, at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, 
Edgehill on some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should listen to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone.